Freedom Hut. Are COVID rules just from the little people? Fauci gets testy on Capitol Hill. Unsealed Epstein documents are out there. And Seattle social justice training is pretty interesting. This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome, everybody, to the Buck Sexton Show. Great to have you here on this Friday. I cannot believe it is almost August. The time is flying by. The height of the election cycle is just around the corner, and it does feel a bit like Groundhog Day because the same two topics or so dominate the headlines across the country. We're going to try to mix things up quite a bit today. We also will get to your calls later on via voicemail in our roll call, so stick around. Let's start with this. Uh, One of the biggest complaints that I've had has been the uh, clear double standard when it comes to COVID rules. As you know, we we will have this steady drumbeat day in and day out of COVID is this horrific pandemic that's killing all these people. And if you even question any of the rules, question any of the regulations, you're a bad person. You're a science denier. You're someone that cannot be trusted. And I I keep I keep seeing that the rules are applied unevenly in a way that's so blatant that the people that are one day lecturing you the next day, they don't even try to really defend it. They just go, well, you know, what can you do? What can you do? It it would be like if you were calling the police to your house and saying, hey, My house got broken into. I know you did an investigation of the house that got broken into last night, last week across the street. So can you investigate the breaking of my house? The cops were just saying, "Ah, what can you do? And and it's a a question that nobody really has a very good answer to. If people don't enforce the law evenly, there are not a whole lot of ways that you can have that addressed. If people don't enforce rules and regulations uh, in a fair manner, you can certainly criticize it as we do you can raise your voice about it but there's no easy mechanism for the elimination of good faith in the enforcement of laws and the the usage of state power it's very very challenging so so i'm bringing this up because you might have seen that uh uh, congressman uh, lewis john lewis who just passed away recently a few days ago has had a series of gatherings uh mourning his passing the guy is is a true is a legitimate civil rights hero he's also been a member of congress for a long time he's a democrat so he's, he's had various phases in his life but he's received a a true you know hero celebration multiple times over and during those celebrations we have seen photos and video and uh, of people gathered together in a church setting who are important, powerful politicians. You know, Obama was, was there yesterday. Uh, Pelosi was there. And we'll talk about this. This was all in Georgia. So they've all gathered together in close quarters, indoors. Sure, they have masks on, but they're still breathing the same air and in the same place. And this happens, and we're supposed to, one, 
forget about the fact this has been established for months now. We should forget that you are not allowed in a state to have a funeral for your family member uh, where you can gather together in a large group. You're not even if you wear masks, doesn't matter. You're not allowed that. John Lewis is allowed that. He is allowed that, right? He has been. And, and other people important to Democrats, uh, whether it's the protesters or the BLM movement, they are held to an entirely different standard. But we've already seen that. That, in a way, has been established for a while. But here is the question, and, and I posed this yesterday on Twitter, and uh, I think you could say it went mega viral, just because it was a, th- it was a thought that I had not seen anyone share yet, and at last count it had uh, over 30,000 retweets. And I'm just telling you that because clearly it struck a nerve. John Lewis's funeral was held in Georgia. There were dozens of members of Congress there, a lot of important politicians. Georgia is on Mayor Bowser of Washington, D.C.'s restricted list for travel. So according to the mayor of Washington, D.C., if you go to Georgia you are supposed to quarantine for two weeks when you return to D.C. That, and that's a full-on quarantine. That is staying by yourself indoors, I guess having other people bring you your food. I mean, that is quarantine. It's not try to maintain social distancing. So let's ask the question. Are these politicians who were in Georgia yesterday for John Lewis's funeral, are, are they going to go into quarantine or are rules just for the little people, you and me? I think we all know the answer already, right? There's no way that Nancy Pelosi is going to spend two weeks in an apartment in D.C. or a hotel room not going outside because of this. There's just no way, among many other politicians. You know, there's, there's, it's not going to happen. And now I understand, and this has been pointed out to me, well, no, the mayor says there's an exception for people who are traveling on business or have, have official business they're traveling on, something like that? No, no. Why should there be an exception for that? Congressman Lewis's funeral is not a necessary life-sustaining activity. It's not, oh, it's not operating the grocery store. It's not you know bringing food for the shelves, keeping pharmacies open, first responders going. It's none of those things. It's political theatrics for Democrats. That's that is why they're all there. That is, yes, obviously also to commemorate the passing of somebody who was a civil rights hero, as I've said. But why are there so many Democrats there? Why can't they be there via Zoom? I had a family member had a Zoom wedding last week. That's right. Everyone joining via Zoom. And I think it was just the, the, my, my cousin, his wife. Congratulations to them. And um, the priest and moms and dads. That's it. That's it. Everybody else watching via Zoom. You only get married. You're supposed to only get married once. But for that, you have to watch it on a video. Why can't they celebrate? If it's good enough for you to go to church via video, isn't it good enough for you to be present for John Lewis's funeral via video? I, I just or, or for your own family member. No, different rules. Why? Because of exactly what I said, the political theatrics of Democrats being present there. This was 
just too darn important in their eyes. But that then raises a problem for us. For anyone who's looking at this honestly and openly, why? Someone do please explain to me, why do they change the rules about a pandemic, about disease that can kill people and is killing and has killed a lot of people in this country? Why should those rules shift based upon the the worthiness of someone's political needs? I, I think the answer is, of course, it shouldn't change at all. That's very obvious. But here's the part of this we're getting far too used to. Everything I've said, you know, this is true. I'm right. That's why this went mega viral. We all know the politicians are not going to quarantine. You would have to quarantine if you want to go see a family member and then go back to D.C. Or if you go somewhere, I'm going to be in North Carolina in a few weeks. I'm going to be told to quarantine when I come back to New York because I'm not super important. But these Democrats that all showed up and there were there were Republicans there, too, at the funeral. But these politicians, they'll go back and just go about their jobs. And we're supposed to think that. That's acceptable. They're not life sustaining activities. They're not uh, frontline workers, first, uh, you know, first responders. None of that. Just really important. Exactly what we saw with the BLM protests in the streets and public health officials who were saying, you know. But this is really important. I know we've been terrifying you and telling you that life as we know it is over, that civilization is collapsing, that. If you don't wear a mask, you're a moral monster. I know we've been telling you all that, but I mean, BLM is like really important. That was the that was the argument. That is what happened in front of our very eyes. And now we're seeing another version of it with if you are if you are part of a, of a celebration of a man's legacy at if at a funeral that is important to the Democrat Party, the rules don't apply. And if the rules don't apply for that, what that tells all of us is that they don't take these rules seriously for themselves because they don't really believe it's as lethal and it's as impossible uh, to live through this era as they are telling us when they want us to obey the rules. There's no other way to interpret this, right? This is the, the hypocrisy that is so central to Democrats, not only on covid but on a whole range of issues. That's what we see going on here. And and I'm sorry, but I, I still think there should be a lot more outrage, a lot more anger about how the rules when it comes to a disease like this, if they really if somebody really has convictions, if they are convinced that the only way to stop this is with the most severe restrictions, the most consistent mask wearing and hand washing and social distancing, whatever the economic and psychological costs. If they really believe all that, but then they stop believing it the second that there's something they want to see done and and they want to see uh, talked about later on on MSNBC or CNN because it's important to Democrats, they're frauds. And I'm here to tell you, I'm here to remind all of you that there are a whole lot of people, millions of them out there, who, who have a, a dissonance. They have a cognitive dissonance. They cannot bring together the two sides of this because they're absurd. Don't, don't do what we say and you're a monster because the disease is so dangerous. But then we're not going to do what we tell you to do because the disease becomes less dangerous. Suddenly, when wokeness is at issue, when social justice is the purpose 
of the gathering. COVID-19 doesn't care about social justice, my friends. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Children are at the lowest risk of any age group from the virus. Indefinite school closures will inflict lasting harm to our nation's children. We must follow the science and get students safely back to school while protecting children, teachers, staff, and family. We have to remember that there's another side to this. Keeping them out of school and keeping work closed is causing death also. Economic harm, but causing death for different reasons, but death. Probably more death. If governors do not want to open the public schools, the money should go to parents so they can send their children to the school of their choice. So we say if a school doesn't want to open or if a governor doesn't want to open, maybe for political reason and maybe not. But there is some of that going on. The money should go to the parents so they can send their children to the school of their choice. Using this as an opportunity to push for school choice, I certainly like that as a direction for the administration. And as I've mentioned to you, public school teachers are now advocating for limitations on how much Zoom teaching from their homes they can do, too. As if COVID-19 is going to go through the interwebs and infect them. It's, it's pretty nuts. Dr. Redfield, you know, there's a whole series, and we'll, we'll talk about the Fouch and all the testimony on Capitol Hill today. Dr. Redfield who's the CDC director. Remember, uh, Fauci is at NIH. We often talk about him as though he were the head of the CDC, but he's the head of National Institute of Health. Uh, Redfield is CDC chief. And he said today that, quote, it is in the public health interest of K through 12 children to be back in school. We need to get on with it. You know how you were lectured about how the science says this and the science says that? The scientists are now saying very clearly it's safe for kids to be back in school. And yet there's all this pushback on, no, no, it's not safe to be back in school. Oh, says who? Where, where are the prominent public health experts who are going to make the case that a disease that we now have seven months of really clear data on that is less lethal to children than seasonal year in and year out flu, that is a fact. Where's the data that supports shutting down schools? Oh, that data doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. But we all understand what this is about, right? Everyone's masked up. Schools are closed. Vote for change. Anything but Trump. This is about the November election. It could not be any more clear. So I just want everyone to make sure that they don't, because they're going to gaslight you on this. They're going to make all kinds of claims. Here is the, the most... In some ways, the most stunning gaslighting of all, the worst places for, for COVID-19 in America, when you're looking at the response and per capita death rates, the worst places are New York and New Jersey, two of the bluest of the blue states, Democrat strongholds both. And yet Cuomo in particular thinks that he is in a position to make fun of other governors for their lack of science. They don't listen to the science in those other states. They don't care. They did not watch my briefings. Why did they not watch my briefings? I explained it all for them. Uh, turns out that's very much not true. But you have former presidential candidate who I think was, was on a track. He was presidential candidate for the Democrats. He was on track to get 
at least hundreds of votes across the country. I mean, he probably would have broken four digits if he had stayed in the race. So he really missed out. Seth Moulton. And here's a discussion that he has with Amy McGrath of Kentucky, where he just continues to spread the nonsense and the lies um, about who's doing badly against this uh, this disease. Play clip one. We certainly have this perception in the in the Northeast that all the red states are, you know, they kind of they're getting what was coming to them because they refuse to follow these mandates and they're playing politics with this rather than listening to the science. Oh, oh, they getting what was coming to them in the red states. Hmm. Does, does he try to explain do, do the libs want to want to explain to us? why California is having all-time high numbers of COVID cases right now? Do they want to explain why it is the fault of red state America that Florida, which is a 50-50 Democrat-Republican state, Florida is having its all-time high cases? But even more importantly than that, both of those states, and also Texas and Arizona, uh, have been far more effective when you look at the single most important metric of all of this, which is mortality. New York and New Jersey were, uh, I, I don't know how to put it, it, it was carnage here. I mean, it was, it was a COVID bloodbath in New York and New Jersey for 90 days. And it was unbelievable the numbers we're seeing and how many people were dying here. Things right now have escalated in those other states. I believe it's because that this disease, this is just my belief, I believe this disease is very hard to stop the spread of and uh, that it is now just... In New York and New Jersey, we're at relative herd immunity, not perfect, but some degree of herd immunity because the disease spread so much. And these other states are now getting it. And I, I can't I can't tell you why some countries have been hit terribly by this around the world and others haven't. And there's a lot of, you know, there are some additional lockdowns in countries right now that we were told, oh, they've handled it so well. But one thing I can't tell you for sure, the blue states are in no position whatsoever to point fingers at red states and say, see, we followed the science. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, I mentioned Barack Obama at John Lewis's funeral. And I, I didn't want, because the, the, the biggest issue for me was just the lack of social distancing at the funeral. And then also the return of all of these possibly infected, including a whole lot of senior citizens who may be infected, members of Congress, returning to D.C., even if they tell you there's some carve out in the order that it doesn't matter, it shows you that they're unserious about this being a universally applicable quarantine regulation. But also what Obama said at a funeral, I mean, Obama used this as a really nasty partisan moment when it just is inappropriate. It shouldn't be that. Here is what former President Obama, I think, can we just say Obama? Why do we have to? I don't like when people call people, and this is true. You know I feel this way. Those of you who have been listening to me for a while, I don't like calling people ambassador who are no longer ambassador. I don't like calling people president who are no longer president. The only exception I have for this is, I think, you know, if you, if you want to keep your military title as an honorific after you've retired, that, that I'm okay with. But all this other elected office stuff or appointed office stuff, hmm, I don't, I don't think so. 
I don't think that you get to be called Mr. President your whole life when you're no longer president. I think that's a, that's a weird precedent. And anyway, so Obama, U.S. Uh, US citizen uh, Barack Obama, there you go, said the following uh, at this at this funeral for John Lewis. Play clip two. He knew from his own life that progress is fragile, that we have to be vigilant against the dark occurrence of this country's history, of our own history, with their whirlpools of violence and hatred and despair that can always rise again. Bull Connor may be gone, but today we witness with our own eyes police officers kneeling on the necks of black Americans. George Wallace may be gone, but we can witness our federal government sending agents to use tear gas and batons against peaceful demonstrators. Reckless lies from Obama, not the first time and certainly not the last. Uh, Obama is really a fluid, really a talented liar. That was one of his main skills when he was president. To say that George Wallace may be gone, but we can see our own federal government using tear gas and batons against peaceful demonstrators. Uh, where is that happening? I just want to know which which situation we're talking about, because every time they say this and we look at the facts, no, they only use force against rioters. When you are at a protest and you start attacking cops and destroying property, you are a rioter. You're no longer a peaceful. And notice the usage of the word demonstrator. To soften it up even a little bit more. Oh, they're not even protest. Protest sounds a bit more aggressive. They're demonstrators. They're just they're just conversationalists gathering together in the street. They just want to they just want to have a chat with everybody. Except when they're throwing bricks at cops, when they're using lasers to try and permanently blind federal officers. I've said it before. If I thought someone was trying to blind me and I had lethal means at my disposal, I would use those against that person to stop them from blinding me. And I would not think twice, and I would not feel guilty for a second. But we're told that these protesters, oh, because they're only throwing bags of urine and feces at federal agents protecting courthouses, they're the bad guys. Look, we had uh, DHS number two, Cuccinelli, on the show yesterday. I've talked to Chad Wolf. Chad Wolf came on this show before he came on a whole lot of other ones, the acting director of DHS to tell us exactly about this phenomenon, about this situation. And I thought the most important part of what Cuccinelli told us on the show yesterday was that you had Democrats who are so disconnected from the truth that it's stunning when they actually get a DHS briefing on what's happening. And then even after they've been confronted with the truth, after they've been spewing lies, then they go out and knowingly spew the same lies about how these are peaceful protesters. And that's what we mean by narrative. That's what we mean when we talk about the Democrat dishonest narrative regarding all these protests and all this police stuff that's going on. Uh, but, but Obama played right into it. And let's remember, the BLM movement started under the Obama administration. It was Obama who elevated the George Zimmerman case to being a, a, national, uh, you know, a, a national outrage when Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman, it was... A guy who uh, you know, clearly has, Zimmerman clearly has problems, who under any other designation, if we, when the media talks about someone's race ethnicity, would have been considered Hispanic. But his last name was Zimmerman, so they called him a white Hispanic. Even though you, you see this guy, you'd say, he's Hispanic. And, there, and he's not a police officer, 
But Trayvon Martin doesn't like this guy. They have an exchange. They get into a fight. Trayvon Martin starts bashing his head on the sidewalk. This is what all the evidence pointed to. This is what was found by the investigators looking at this. You're bashing someone's head into concrete. They have a gun. Guess what? They're going to shoot you. And that is what happened. Should George Zimmerman have been following Trayvon Martin? You know, we, we've gone through, we've talked about this so many times on the show years, years ago. But remember Barack Obama, if I had a son, he would have looked like Trayvon. Well, that's really throwing gasoline on the fire here intentionally, right? To sort of personalize this as though it, it was the president's own son who was attacked. And remember the photos that they were using of Trayvon Martin? The photos you would always see in the media, he was about 12 years old and in a cap and gown and smiling. And you think, how could anyone have murdered this this angelic young boy? Oh, and then the photos started to circulate about how, you know, he was actually 18, six feet tall, and 180 pounds uh, and, you know, bashing someone's head into the sidewalk. And there were bloody wounds on the guy's head from it. Uh, but that wasn't what the media wanted you to think. Oh, the same thing with Mike Brown. How many of you have seen all the Mike Brown photos where he's in a cap and gown? That's the only photo the media could find. He's in a cap and gown. Uh, I, I got to tell you, there were a lot of other photos. And photo choice, as any one of the media knows, is a huge signifier of what they're trying to tell you and what the story is supposed to be about. Look at You look at a left-wing site, they'll pick the ugliest photo of Trump they can, the most angry-looking photo of Trump they can, for stories all the time. And it's true of conservatives as well. We'll pick stories where, you know, Pelosi looks like she's on her third bottle of Chardonnay for the day. You know, that's, that's just the way this goes. But let's all live in reality. Let's all be adults about this. The, the choice of the photo clearly matters. But I'm getting deep into this because Obama was reckless in his discussions about these issues. He was always throwing cops under the bus. Did not help. He doesn't help because the Democrat Party is invested as an institution. Their power, the Democrat Party's power rests on the perpetuation of racial division and of a narrative of systematic oppression, racism, and continuing murder of young black men by agents of the state. Unjust murder of black men by agents of the state, or homicide. Uh, reckless stuff. Obama, of course, it played, played right into it. You know, played right into it. And I did appreciate last night on, on his show when, when Tucker uh, said, you know, Obama, guy, a guy who... Grew up in Hawaii, who just like Hillary Clinton does sometimes, depending on when she's in the South or when he's in the South, all of a sudden is a little bit more of a, of a lilt, a little bit more of a, of a Southern, Southern draw comes out. But these, these politicians are not pandering. No, 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 that, that's, not, that's not what happens. Certainly not. Right. All right, so I, I just, I, I had to, that, that Obama thing. I, because, I, you know, I was telling you yesterday about what an effective brand he is for Democrats, and I have to always remember... Sometimes I try to see things through the eyes of our ideological opponents and speak about it in a way that people forget. Wait, what is he saying? Yeah, Obama's effective for getting Democrat voters out. Obama was never effective in the least at governance or at unifying. Two things he failed at catastrophically. Oh, and also helping the Democrat Party get elected. He was good at getting himself elected, but because his agenda was so terrible, the Democrat Party suffered uh, terribly as a result of all of it. So... Now I want I want to go back uh, to where we are here on these cap on the Capitol Hill uh, testimony today, because th this really matters. The the likelihood that we're all seeing yeah, the law and order thing has been a big issue, but I think that's going to fade a little bit. The likelihood is 
whatever the perception of our battle against COVID will be and our feelings about that in November, that's going to determine the election. Because that also brings into it the economy and it brings into it just people's sense of where the country's going. So you're seeing an all out battle an all out focus. They're not even spending time on, oh, you know, Trump, Russia stuff. That's in the background. They'll talk about it a little bit, but. And you're not seeing stuff. About, you know, the Billy Bush tape and all these things, those they'll bring that up a little bit here and there, because why not? But the focus is all going to be about covid American misery, Trump's fault. That's the entire pitch. And we have to see which public health experts, you know, who among the revered public health experts out there is playing into this narrative, whether they're doing it in a sly way or an overt way. And that then brings me to the Fouch, who was on Capitol Hill today, not throwing baseballs in the wrong direction. On Capitol Hill is what the Fouch had to say. We'll get to it. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. So how is it all going today down on the hill when things got feisty with Fauci? You know, the mitigation is not perfect. We got a lot of cases. I keep telling you, you know, do the things, wash the hands, wash them a lot. You know, I prefer soap that has kind of a fancy smell, but doesn't matter how fancy the smell is. You just wash your hands. And, you know, we'll we'll learn in time more about the virus. We don't know enough right now to tell you that much, but we know that mitigation through masks is good. All that kind of stuff, right? We we know about the Fouch with all this. Here is the most interesting moment today, uh, because he doesn't have really much to tell us at all. They're hoping for a vaccine at the end of the year. They got a lot of vaccine candidates. They're in phase three clinical trials with a couple of different uh, already with a couple of different vaccine candidates. The whole world's working on this. Uh, our therapeutics right now are pretty crappy. You know, remdesivir helps a little bit in that it makes a shorter hospital stay, but it's not like remdesivir is going to save you necessarily. Uh, so, and then there's obviously hydroxychloroquine. We've been talking about that all week. Um, what did, what does Fauci say though? When if he's going to constantly be the voice of warning, which is what he is, he's the one who's always out there telling us that we've got to listen to the health experts, to the data and the science. That's what we're told, data and science. Okay. But what about these massive protests that, that keep popping up, that keep happening in cities across America? He will say, well, I'll let Jim Jordan pose this one to him. You'll hear the exchange, and then we'll make some sense of it. Play clip 20. Dr. Fauci, do protests increase the spread of the virus? Do protests increase the spread of the virus? Uh, I think I can make a general statement. Well, half a million protesters on June 6th alone. I'm just asking that number of people. Does it increase the spread of the virus? Crowding together, particularly when you're not wearing a mask, contributes to the spread of the virus. Should we limit the protesting? I'm not sure what you mean. Should how do we say limit the protesting? The government limit the protesting. I, I, I don't think that's relevant to. Well, you just said if it increases the spread of the virus, I'm just asking, should we limit it? Well, I'm, I'm not in a position to determine what the government can do in a forceful way. Well, you make all kinds of recommendations. You, no. you make comments on dating, on baseball, on everything no. you can imagine. I'm just asking you, you just said it, yeah. that protests increase the spread. No. I'm just asking you, should we try to limit the protests? No, I think I would leave that to people who have more of an, a, a position to do that. I can tell you. Government stopping people from going to church, Dr. Fauci. Yeah. Yeah. So... 
here you have exactly what a lot of us have been thinking is the case all along. He'll say in general terms that crowds contribute to the spread of the virus. Yeah, we already know that. But he won't say that, yes, specifically protests have contributed to the spread of this virus. He won't say it. Why will he say one and not the other? He wants us to make that, you know, he's going to leave it to us, I should say, to make that very logical conclusion. But what's with the, what's the harm in just saying it? Why not just come out and say, yes, these protests have definitely spread virus. How many news stories have you seen about even a single person who has gotten the virus from protesting? Are, are we to believe? Are we to believe that no one got it from these huge gatherings of people very close together? I know they were outdoors. I know they're wearing masks. But they were shouting and screaming and in close quarters for a long time. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm not of the mind that it's safe to be outdoors. You know, if somebody had the flu and we're outside, I wouldn't say, oh, it's OK. Shout in my face right next to me because we're outside. Right. So, I mean, there are limits to all of this. It's all about what your your risk tolerance is and should be. And, and that then brings me to why. If we're supposed to be so concerned about the continuing spread of this virus, although it does seem like the curve is starting to go down in Arizona, it seems like the curve maybe has peaked and is going down in Florida. If we're so concerned about all of this, why are we willing to say, hey, guys, uh, lay off on the protest? Why are protests essential activity right now? And church is not. That's the fundamental question. Democrats have no answer for this. Oh, we know the answer. It's because protests are useful to Democrats and they like them. They like these protests that are really all based in this fairy tale that cops are murdering unarmed black men in large numbers year in and year out in America. That's a lie. But the protests appeal to this Democrat sense of grievance politics and uh, you know, oppression, oppression theory. So they won't ever say anything directly against the protests. And I just think that it's unreasonable for anyone to think that we're not going to see this and take note of this and factor it in to how willing we are to continue to listen to all this stuff. I mean, those of you who, who, are, who are in Texas right now, who are in Cal well, California has been strict all along, but who are in Texas, who are in Georgia, who are in the Carolinas, you're now seeing what it's like, what we were dealing with in New York, with the lockdowns and the panic uh, that, were going, that was going on. And it shows you that even in states that aren't as wildly left wing as New York, if there's enough fear and if the media can create a narrative, all of a sudden they'll do these shutdowns. You know, what Dr. Redfield said today and no one ever really focused on this, which I thought was a an important point. He said that if we just do uh, a few things, if we just do the lot, if, if we just do masking, uh, no large gatherings, I, I, there were there were a couple of them and just do those things. It's as effective as an altogether lockdown. Oh, gee, I'm glad they figured that out now. So, I mean, the true shelter in place lockdown was completely unnecessary. That's what the CDC director said. We didn't have to. We never had to do that. We did that. Is it going to be any accounting for that? This is what his own CDC analysis says. The all out shelter in place that we had to go through in New York and a lot of other states was unnecessary. You get the same effect if you just do some of the basic stuff that we're now talking about.
Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I don't want to delay. I want to have the election. But I also don't want to have to wait for three months and then find out that the ballots are all missing and the election doesn't mean anything. That's what's going to happen, Steve. That's common sense. And everyone knows it. Smart people know it. Stupid people may not know it. And some people don't want to talk about it, but they know it. And no, we want to have an election where people actually go in and what's your name? My name is so-and-so. Boom, you signed the book like I've been doing for years. It's very, very unfair to our country. If they do this, our country will be a laughingstock all over the world because everyone knows it doesn't work. And here we are, as I knew we would, continuing to have to have this discussion about whether Trump is going to seize power. He will seize power. Uh, It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen, but we have to keep talking about it because the president knows how to troll his opponents, that's for sure, and get them completely crazy. Because remember, Trump supporters wouldn't be okay with that. This is, this is what the libs don't understand. They really do believe that there's a Trump cult where nothing, nothing could ever uh, you know, turn us uh, away from the president. No, if he loses the election, he loses the election, guys. I've never met a Trump supporter who's like, well, if he, if he loses the election, you know, he just wants to seize power. No, of course not. But that doesn't get psycho libs fired up i mean the the truth and reality are not nearly as useful to them so what you have instead you have people like jennifer granholm who i always remember from my time on the bill maher show she was like kids in cages kids in cages just started screaming that at me i was trying to have a conversation about health care for illegal aliens (laughs) just like okay uh i don't know what you know i don't know what you smoked before you came on this show but kids in cages kids in i could this this was the governor of michigan a total nincompoop. One thing that we keep seeing with politicians, and it is, it is, I mean this, there are dumb Republicans. There are some who are pretty dumb. It's just the truth. I speak the truth on this show. But for every dumb Republican, and I mean somebody who just clearly is not very bright, who's a Republican, I'm talking about politicians now, uh, a, a Republican member of Congress or, or governor or so on and so forth is not very bright. I really think it's 10 to 1. Democrat to Republican. Maybe you could argue with me and say it's five to one. But for, for I sit and I think about the members of Congress on the right. Who I'm like, OK, that guy's just not or that guy's just not very smart. And I think about the Democrats that I know who are just not, it's not even close. And Granholm here. Oh, I haven't even let you hear what she has to say. I, I'm still I'm just there's a part of me that will never really grasp how this woman was the governor of a, of a large, serious state like michigan it, it's but then again we got cuomo here in new york so but he's it's because of his last name it's like a family dynasty same reason his weightlifter brother has a uh, tv show so here you go with grant on play clip three you know as a governor and there were a couple of governors who participated in this the point of this exercise is that trump has got a huge amount of uh, power at his disposal he's got the military he's got the secretary of state he's got compliant republicans hopefully they can be persuaded but remember elections are run by the states and governors and secretaries of state in every single state right now should be doing one of these tabletop exercises to game out the worst case scenarios what 
if Trump foments right-wing provocateurs and then sends out the military to put out the fire he created? What if he seizes the ballot boxes? What's the strategy to de-escalate protests? What do state elections officials do now to give the public the assurance that vote by mail is safe and doesn't inspire fraud? What do state elections officials do now if he defunds the post office, for example? So those things have to be happening right now at the state level. Yes, let's have a really serious conversation about what do we do if Trump decides we're going to spend the entire federal budget on time travel? What do we do if Trump thinks that we're all moving to Mars in December? What do we do? How much dumber can it get? Oh, yeah. States should all be wargaming. States should be spending their budgets wargaming the possibility of Trump using the military to seize ballots and steal the election. This is a person who is the governor of a large state and is treated with seriousness by Democrats. And you all understand how that would work, right? If, if, if Democrat states start spending parts of their budget on this complete fantasy that Donald Trump is going to seize, nobody would let him. The military wouldn't let nobody would go along with this. That's what they don't understand. We're not them. We actually believe in rules and morals. <laughs> we believe in contracts. We don't just think it's whatever. There is no truth. There is no objective reality. It's just whatever you can get away with based upon what makes you feel good and the power you want. That, that's the Democrat approach. We don't do that, right? What happened when Mitt Romney lost the 2012 election? Let, let, let's look at some examples here. What happened when Mitt Romney lost the 2012 election? Um, I was at Glenn Beck's uh, studio in D.C. I'm sorry, in uh, Dallas. And I was working at the Blaze at the time. And yes, when it finally happened, I did say a couple of off-air salty words because I was like, I can't believe Obama got four more years after his horrible stewardship of the economy. But he did. And that was it. And it was like, all right, Obama's the president, guys. You know, that was, you know, game game over for Romney. And Romney, of course, was a kind of a fake Republican anyway. He was good on immigration. I know we all Romney now with the BLM stuff and hating Trump is and he's uh, he's much more of a narcissist and an arrogant guy. His whole, oh, gosh, I'm just Mitt Romney and I'm just so friendly. You know, you know, no, this guy's uh, a shark. He's just good at hiding it. But. You wonder, I mean, it makes perfect sense. This guy was a private equity baron, made himself hundreds of millions of dollars. It's not because he's such a sweetheart. All right. It's not it's not because he's so concerned with the working man. But I do think he would have been a better president. I don't regret my vote for Romney over Obama because he would have been better than Obama. But I never I never thought Romney was some fantastic, uh, you know, game changer of a politician. That's for sure. Uh, But. We lost that. The Republicans lost that election and the world went right back to, okay. what do we do now? The next day, there was no Oh, Obama cheated. Let's go to court. Let's have all this. There was Russian interference and all this stuff. What happened in 2016? Oh, all of that. Right. Trump cheated, stole the election. Russia, Russia. Insane. 2000. What happened there? Oh, that's right. Went all the way to the Supreme Court because the Democrats kept trying to cherry pick certain places to count more ballots and count them a certain way so they could just get ahead of Bush in Florida and declare Al Gore the president. Supreme Court said enough of that. You're either going to do a full recount of everything on the schedule allowed or you're not going to do it. 
Uh, and then they claim that that was that was stolen. Democrats are the crybabies about elections. This is what history tells us. They're the ones that can't handle it. Republicans go, OK. And it's and it's really because of what I've been saying that uh, Democrats view politics as a religion. Very interesting data that I wanted to share with you on that note, because this is what happens. I'll say Democrats are a bunch of godless commies, and I'm trying to be a little provocative, but there's also a lot of truth in that, right? So, I mean, I look, I, I know that that's too broad and sweeping a statement. It is fun to say, though. It brings a smile to my face because it gets at an underlying truth. You know, if they're going to run around saying Republicans are all racist, I'm just going to remind them because there are some racist Republicans. But I think there's a tiny, tiny. I think it's, you know, less than one percent of the Republican Party is actually racist. Um, And I think that there's an equal percentage of Democrats that are racist. Whole other conversation. But well, it all depends on how you describe racism. I think there are a lot more Democrats that are racist than they realize. But they just think that, oh, well, if we change the laws to help people who you know, we don't think are necessarily going to be able to compete in a meritocracy. That's not racist. We're, we're the good people for doing that. Really? Conservatives, Republicans, we're the ones who say we believe that anybody of any skin color, any ethnicity, any background can compete on a fair playing field. We, we don't think that you have to give one set of standards for one group and another set of standards for another group. I think there's a case to be made that it's kind of racist to have different standards for people based upon their ethnicity. But regardless, um, the... The uh, data that I saw, and it just came up last night because I've been telling you that, yeah, I actually think it's it's fair that the Democrats are viewing, increasingly view um, their political beliefs as a it's a religious movement. And I'm ah, as I'm trying to trying to find the data in real time. But I'll, I'll 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 tell you what it was. And then when I can find it, I'll give it to you more specifically. Um, so here we go. We have, oh yeah. If you are talking about Democrats overall, this was what was so, if you're talking about Democrats overall, there's not that much difference when you look at church attendance between Democrats and Republicans. Now I know church attendance is not a perfect proxy for how religious a person is and so on and so forth, but I do think that it's it's a meaningful way to to look at the data. And so this is why Democrats will say, how dare you call us godless commies? You know, we, we got to. All right. Well, but but really, you know who the godless commies are in the Democrat Party? White Democrats. If you take the non-white Democrats out of the equation, when you're talking about religion and church attendance, all of a sudden. Republicans are about four times as likely to go. Now, obviously, we're, this is about Christians specifically, uh, but four times as likely to go to church and be serious about their religion as Democrats. So the godless commies, when I when I refer to Democrats as godless commies, I'm actually talking about white Democrats. They're the godless commies in this equation. And the data actually supports that. They're the ones that have just embraced they're either uh, nominally religious for social reasons, but not really, or are, are straight up uh, atheists or agnostics or whatever they want to call it. And why is that relevant to this discussion? Because their politics are a replacement for that sense of need, belonging and purpose that comes from religious belief, which is why when you say, hey, uh, you guys are enforcing two sets of rules on covid They'll just look at you and scream, kids in cages, kids in cages. And you look at them and say, what happened to you? Like, have you, have you had some kind of a 
an episode or something? What's going on here? You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. What's it like to be a white liberal these days with white liberals telling you what you're allowed to believe and think? And this, uh, this applies as well to non-liberals. But what are the things that white, that white liberals want white people across the board to not just be taught, be indoctrinated with and, and be forced to agree with? You'll perhaps recall a few weeks ago, a fellow, uh, I talked about this on the show, a fellow named Christopher Rufo, who's the director of Discovery Institute Center on Wealth and Policy. He uh, decided to, go, I, to do a public records request for what they're training. I mean, Seattle's the place where they had the autonomous zone and they've had all this lunatic left-wing protester stuff. So he wanted to see what the training is for Seattle uh, public employees. What, what are they learning? Taxpayer dollars going toward this training. And what are these city employees being taught is the way that they're supposed to do their jobs and, and so on and so forth. And so that brings me to the Seattle Office of civil rights and their race and social justice curriculum for all 10,000 city employees. So 10,000 employees of the city of Seattle being taught this. He obtained the documents, uh, Christopher Rufo did, from the city's segregated whites-only training. Which is, so, so they separate out now white-only employees in Seattle for this. I, you can't make this stuff up which induct white employees in, as he writes, the cult of critical race theory. This is, this is Christopher Rufo's thread here. The training is called Internalized Racial Superiority for White People. After attendees arrive, they must announce their... This, this is the, the actual training. He has the slides. They must announce their pronouns and tell, their, tell the trainers when they first became race-conscious. In other words, when they began their journey of internalized racism. According to the Office of Civil Rights, white employees must process their white feelings of sadness, shame, paralysis, confusion, and denial. Then they must take action to redistribute resources, change who's in power, and alter institutions. So that's right. White people are trained by the taxpayers uh, on the taxpayers dime in Seattle to deal with their white shame and guilt and paralysis and sadness. Can you imagine if you stood up at this and you were to say, um, excuse, excuse me, Bob, uh, I'm white and um uh, I don't feel sadness, shame, and paralysis over my whiteness, so perhaps you could help me achieve the proper degree of, of shame over my whiteness. I just want to put that out there, and thank you for your time today. I, I guess the trainers would tell you, well, just go watch a lot of MSNBC or CNN. You'll, you'll be indoctrinated in your white shame in no time. Rufo's thread here continues. Next, white employees must examine their relationships with white supremacy, racism, and whiteness. They must explain. This is, this is in the slides, folks. This is the, tr the actual training given to all these employees. They must explain how their families benefit economically from the system of white supremacy 
even as it directly and violently harms black people. In the next two reflections, the trainers ask the white employees how their white fragility is showing up at work and how their white silence causes harm to black people. All white employees are expected to share examples of their own racism. My friends, this is publicly. You are, you are mandated, imagine this, you are a city employee in Seattle. You are mandated by your job to be there. I did all kinds of training when I was at the NYPD, and some of it was dumb as all, as all heck, but I was told I had to be there. You know, I had to do all this sort of, uh, you know, don't sexually harass training. You know, sit there and, you know, Bob walks in, uh, hey there, Sally, looking cute in that dress. And it's like, dun, 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 and some guy shows up, do not tell Sally she looks cute in her dress. Like, I don't really need to watch this stuff, but anyway, I, I had to sit there and watch it, right? No, no choice, no choice. You're for, forced to watch it. Uh, this is the same thing in Seattle. You're being told to share stories of your own racism. I mean, this is, this is cult indoctrination, right? You self-deprecate, you self-negate, um, you go through this ritual of, of a cleansing of your own evil and your own lack of worth. And then the people around you, of course, all have this to hold over you that now you've talked about your racism. Oh, there's more. The Office of Civil Rights in Seattle then claims that white people internalize the system of white supremacy through the racist values of individualism, intellectualization, objectivity, and comfort, and that those values must be abolished from the work of city government. That's right. They want to tell you that to overcome racism... We must abolish individualism and intellectualization. I got to tell you, that's really racist. For trainers, I'm sh- I'd, I'd bet that the trainers here, just like the author of White Fragility uh, is white, I bet the trainers for this program are probably, uh, at least some of them are, are, are white themselves. And for them to be telling a room full of people that intellectualization is a white characteristic that must be banished from public uh public work that's racist thanks for listening to the bus sex and show podcast remember to subscribe on apple podcast the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts unsealed documents show epstein and maxwell correspondence in 2015 that's the uh, story up on nbc news right now a lot of places covering this Attorneys for Maxwell have argued that she hadn't had any contact with the accused sex trafficker for more than a decade. Here, here's just the, let's get into the details of this. You got a trove of court documents unsealed Thursday night that appear to show that the late accused sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein was in contact with his now charged confidant Ghislaine Maxwell in 2015. Uh, attorneys for Maxwell, who was arrested July 2nd, have argued that she hadn't had any contact with Epstein for more than a decade and is the target of overzealous prosecutors. Uh-oh, this is not good for uh, Maxwell's team here. In one email between Epstein and Maxwell in 2015, ex- uh, Epstein appears to be composing a draft statement for Maxwell to release publicly. The date in January 2015 is a few weeks after one of Epstein's alleged victims, Virginia Roberts, uh, Guffrey first shared her story with a British newspaper. Um, In another typo-filled email a few days later, dated January 25th, 
Jeffrey E. writes, quote, you have done nothing wrong and I would urge you to start acting like it. Go outside, head high, not as an escaping convict. Go to parties, deal with it. So she's got an issue here. The unsealed documents also contained, um, and this is from a defamation case filed against Maxwell in 2015 by Guffrey, who has alleged that Epstein sexually abused her. The, the documents Thursday also contain allegations that Jane Doe 3, uh, allegations who match those of Guffrey, was forced to have sexual relations with Prince Andrew on Epstein's private island in what was described as an orgy with numerous other underage girls. It does not specify the year. The woman was allegedly instructed by Epstein to give the prince whatever he demanded and report back to him on the details of the sexual abuse. Um, all right. So now here we go. We've got more documents out there that raise a lot of the same Epstein questions we've been asking all along here. But here's one part of this. How did how did the uh, justice system fail so many young girls so horrifically? And how could somebody as brazen in his abuse and someone so clearly guilty? uh, How could that person get away with this for as long as he did now? This is where we get this is where we get into these these documents, the specifics of them. And you have this is according to the uh, Technofog blog on Twitter, who's got a huge following, does a lot of legal. Uh, he's a lawyer, does a lot of legal analysis uh, online. And it's just one of these and, and actually gets a lot of attention for it. Um, but oh, and then this was actually a tweet from from Mike Cernovich. I'm sure some of you are familiar with men who Ghislaine Maxwell directed, according to these documents, directed Virginia Guffrey to engage in activities with. And this is from Guffrey's deposition. Alan Dershowitz, Glenn Dubin, Stephen Kaufman, Prince Andrew, Jean-Luc Brunel, Bill Richardson, Marvin Minsky, other names, many more names redacted. What are those other names? Who are those other names? My friends, uh, this is a this is one of these cases where the early conspiracy theories were even less outrageous than what we're finding out are true. Right. I mean, this this goes beyond what I think even some of the people who in the early stages of this had thought. It was bad. Oh, this is really bad. Really bad for the Justice Department uh, and very bad uh, in terms of how high up this goes and, and how egregious some of these offenders seem to have been. Look, everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. I mean, technically Epstein. I know this is a horrible thing, you get, but you got to technically Epstein is still innocent until proven guilty. The guy never actually. Well, not innocent of the initial when he took a plea bargain, but I mean, the charges that the feds were going to send him away to the rest of of his life in prison for, that's all still alleged, even though he, do we say he was suicided in prison? Is that the proper way to say it? Uh, Another thing from this Technofog blog here online, uh, in one witness interview, it is said that Bill Clinton was at Epstein's Island with Jeffrey Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell, and two young girls. 
Bill Clinton spent a lot of time with this guy. Now, you've got to ask, how, what, what lengths would the legal and political establishment in America go to to protect the Clinton name? When, remember, it was expected that Bill Clinton's wife was going to be the president of the United States in 2016. So it's 20, 2012, 2013. Everyone knows Hillary's going to run again. After Obama was done, everyone knew Hillary was going to run. What would they have been willing to do to protect him? Now, Bill Clinton, there is no, there is, is not yet an on-the-record allegation of sexual impropriety involving these underage girls. There's a mountain of sexual impropriety against Bill Clinton that's already proven in the past. You've got to remember that. Uh, including criminal allegations of sexual assault, credible criminal allegations of sexual assault. But I, I, I think you have to look at this and all the stuff that's coming about Epstein and remember that we, we, we're not hearing from the libs, from the left, from the Democrats, about how women have a, you know, that, that victims and women have a right to be believed on this one. Why is that? Why, why is it that that doesn't apply here. Now, I'm somebody who's always rejected. I, I don't like this uh, presumption of guilt approach, but Democrats do. Democrats uh, have, have been pushing this. They certainly pushed it against Kavanaugh with the preposterous allegations against him, and they continue to push this when it suits them. Why, why not here? Well, when you start to look at that list and you look at some of the names that are involved and you say, hmm, I can guarantee you this, my friends, if it were a list with mostly prominent Republicans on it, we would be hearing a very different tone about these allegations from the media. We all know this, right? We understand. Can you imagine if there was any actual name, you know, any actual uh, even unnamed, but on the record allegation of sexual impropriety from any of these girls um, and I think it is fair. Well, they were girls at the time uh, against Donald Trump. It's all you would hear about every day from now until the election. It's all you would hear. It would be constant. It would, it would actually be even more than the covid thing for a while. I'd probably go back to it. But but no, there's nothing, nothing like that. No one has ever said that Donald Trump engaged in any sexual impropriety of any kind with any of these Epstein trafficked victims. Uh, but there are a bunch of other people who have been. Very either directly implicated or very closely associated with some of these activities. And you've just got to wonder, there's such a lack of curiosity in the media about this. It's almost like they're afraid of what they might find. It's almost like the media apparatus in America and the, the power that is wielded by those who control news media and journalism uh, they understand at some level that if they really dig into this, it's not going to help their team. It's not going to help their team. And that's what they care about first and foremost. Not, not going to help them out. And so the girls, the victims here, not as important as making sure the team gets a win or doesn't get a loss. And then the other side of this is the legal component. I, I watched the Epstein documentary on Netflix. Um, it was, I, I've got to tell you, I, I thought it could have been a lot more powerful than it was. And it was very clear that Patterson, the guy behind it, the f famous author, 
is a friend of Bill Clinton's because they were like, yeah, Bill Clinton went to the went to pedophile island and hung out with this guy and everything. Else. But, you know, you know, uh, is not really everyone thinks that he was innocent. That, that's basically what they say in the documentary based on what I'm not exactly sure. But that's what they say. That's the that's the pitch. That's the approach. And I, I'm just going to as a as a guy. I know that it's very unlikely that Bill Clinton, a an established sexual predator and Epstein, an established sexual predator. We really we're really going to think they didn't have conversations. They just just put us put aside what you've been told by everybody else. We're going to assume that that, you know, Bill Clinton, when he was talking to Epstein, he was listening like, hey, I like I like pretty girls. You like pretty girls. You know what's going on? You, they, they didn't discuss that. Yeah, they're, they're just talking about climate change all the time. Is is that what we? They really want us to believe that they're socializing, you know, extensively, spending a lot of time together with really nobody else around and, and nobody else paying attention to what's going on. And it never came up that Epstein was having this parade of young girls to this island all the time. And Bill Clinton was never like, well, "What's going on here?" Oh, I have no idea. Mm, sorry, folks, I just don't buy it. Now, I don't know if Bill Clinton himself engaged in any illegal acts or not. I don't know that, and it would be unfair to say that. It would be incorrect to say that. But I find it not credible that Bill Clinton was unaware of what a scummy disgrace Epstein was when it came to women and and a criminal. I, I don't find that credible. I just simply do not. And remember this, because the media does not want to repeat it. They don't want you to they don't want this come to mind. Donald Trump is the only person we know of who took action on the record against Epstein in a social setting because he was grossed out by him. Fact. The only one. You're done. You're out of Mar-a-Lago. You're hitting on a 14 year old girl, a daughter. Remember, you're gone. Banished. Now, I know that's not a 20-year federal prison sentence, but who else did anything? Everybody else was going along for it. Look, Donald Trump likes beautiful women. That's, there's no question about that. But every indication we've ever seen about Donald Trump is that he likes beautiful women. There is nothing, about, there's nothing that we see in his past that shows an inclination toward anything similar to what Jeffrey Epstein and that world was engaged in. Some of the other people that are implicated in this, I mean, there's the Prince Andrew photo. There's no photo of Trump, you know, with his arm around a, a 16 or 17 year old girl in a way that suggests they're real close. Doesn't exist. I wonder what the, well, if there are any photos of Bill Clinton that we haven't seen yet. There was a huge surveillance operation and somehow we haven't gotten any we haven't gotten anything out of it yet. I haven't seen anything. That's what uh, look, Ghislaine Maxwell I'm I can't tell you that I'm I'm 100 percent confident that she's going to make it all the way to trial. I don't know what's going to happen, but there are vi- the most powerful people in the world in some ways are, are some of the most powerful people in the world are implicated in this whole thing. And think what they'd be willing to do anything. They're willing to do anything to make this stop. And we all know about what happened with Epstein and the MCC and how we're supposed to believe that situation just happened. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast.
Oh, I kind of like the overconfidence that some of the libs are having right now about Donald Trump. I, I like that we're seeing them say, oh, he's definitely going to lose. You know, fake, fake Republican Joe Scarborough, for example. Play clip five. Yeah. He really knows he's going to lose this fall. I mean, he, I mean, he's sending the message to Republican senators, I'm going to lose. After this happened yesterday, Republican senators were aghast that this was, in effect, Donald Trump throwing in the towel, making excuses already for his loss for an election that's like, what, 97, 98 days away? And he's already throwing in the, the, the towel. So he, he's he's already talking about doubting the validity of November's elections because he knows he's going to lose. Exactly what they were saying. Exactly what all the libs and the fake conservatives were saying about Trump going into the 2016 election. So so I like I like to hear this. I like when Democrats are overconfident in how Trump has already lost, because for one, it shows us that they never learn. Right. They never learn humility. They never learn lessons from history or from the past. Uh, but beyond that, it's just the, the kind of deja vu that I want. I'm like, yeah, OK, great. Keep saying he's definitely going to lose. And, and also, can we have more crazy Democrat talking points about how he's uh, worse than Kim Jong-un and, and he's a he's a dictator and, and all this other stuff? Uh, play uh, clip 11 here. This president uh, is absolutely outrageous in the way that he uh, carries out the playbook of third world countries with dictators. Uh, this business of delaying the election. Congress is not going to delay any election, and he should know that by now. Uh, but when he sends out his, you know, paramilitary troops in, into Portland, when he aligns himself with Putin, when he says he loves Kim Jong-un, this is all about the president. This would-be dictator in in our country, who is using the tactics of dictators, particularly in third world countries. And so he is to be ignored. He is a third world dictator. There we go. More of that. Let's have more of the more of the crazy talk coming from Democrats about how Trump is basically already subverting the election. I, I like to I like to hear that sort of nonsense from them. Oh, and what do Democrats think of actual authoritarians and totalitarians they, they pretend whenever whenever trump comes up that they have such a big problem with it but here's diane feinstein who didn't she have a driver who was like a spy for china for a long time uh, here she is on uh, china play 10 in the words of my predecessor speaking um we hold china as a potential trading partner as a, a country that has pulled millions of tens of millions of people out of poverty in a short period of time and as a country growing into a respectable nation among other nations and i deeply believe that yep always going to be weak on china just remember that about the democrats they uh, they talk a big game about how they don't like authoritarianism but china they like a lot no problem with it whatsoever Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Matt Drudge has been one of the most influential individuals in conservative media for decades. The Drudge Report was my homepage starting in college, and for many, many years after that was probably the single website I 
used the most as a news aggregator and was a part of my daily routine. And something happened to it recently. And we'll get into all that where now it's not what it used to be. That's a simple, simple way of putting it. We got somebody who's going to tell us about all of this. Uh, Matt Leshack is with us now. He has a book out, The Drudge Revolution, which you can get on Amazon. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Buck. I appreciate it. All right. So you're a, a biographer, in a sense, for Matt Drudge, correct? That's right. So did, did Matt sit down for you to talk to you about this, or is this an unauthorized biography? It's an unauthorized biography. Matt, as you probably know, has been living in the shadows for nearly two decades. He's maybe given three interviews and has prided himself in not having his picture taken in, in I think, eight years. That's... That's unusual, that is for sure. Tell us about, about Matt Drudge's origins and how the website became as powerful as it is. Yeah, Matt Drudge's origins, it's, it's a fascinating story. Um, he came from a very dysfunctional family. His mother suffered from severe mental health issues. His father disowned him at a young age. And he was really a scrapper. Um, he rose to prominence at least in the early days of the internet, um, by working as a CBS gift shop clerk. And he was able to figure out that the Nielsen ratings were being deposited into the trash a day before they were released publicly. And he, he tried to pay attention to when the custodial staff will come in and knew that there was a window where he could go in, get the uh, Nielsen ratings out of the trash, post it online. And from there, he slowly continued to grow his, his website by, by, in the early days, getting exclusive information a, a lot of times on Hollywood stories. Huh. What were, the big, what were the biggest breaks in the early days for Drudge? He found out that Connie Chun was going to be fired before she did. Um, he got Bob Dole's running mate, right? It was, it was it, a, lot of, a lot of Hollywood things, because what, what he would do is try to keep his ear to the ground as a gift shop clerk, and he'd have Roseanne Barr walking in. He'd be in the orbit of Sybil Shepard. He'd be in the orbit of Jerry Seinfeld. Um, I believe he was also first to report Jerry Seinfeld's salary demands. So it's interesting because now people, and I, I, you know, your intro is what people are talking about. Why has Matt Drudge made this turn? And one of the points I, I try to emphasize with people is that Matt, he's always looked at through this political lens. But the reality is, you know, going through the research and looking at the Drudge Report over all these years and talking to over 200 people who I interviewed for this book, is that Matt's loyalty isn't to a political party or some ideology. His loyalty to, is to his website. And people don't really understand this. So let me give you an example. Andrew Breitbart worked for Matt as an AM editor for many years, was there from the very beginning. And in early 2008, Andrew Breitbart would be posting stories. Do you remember the Reverend Wright story? Yes, of course. Well, he would post Reverend Wright stories, and Matt, from whatever location he was at, would take them down and replace them with something more favorable to Obama. And this happened in, uh, with a number of different stories. And unlike, unlike Matt, Andrew was a real true believer in his form of conservatism. Um, and eventually he picked up the phone and he called Matt and he said, why, what is, what's going on here? And Matt's response was very telling. He said, an Obama presidency might be horrible for the country, but it sure would be great for my website. And, you know, it's hard to argue with at least part of that. I mean, Matt, you'd be challenged to find more than a handful of people who did better than Matt Drudge under the Obama administration. 
for example, um, I mean, I think his net worth right now is worth north of $100 million. So, you know... What was the Drudge Report making a year? I mean, I'm really curious. What was the Drudge Report estimated to be making in revenue year in and year out during the Obama years? So that, that information is not public, but what was public was his page views. And they were, um, they were at an all-time high. I mean, he was doing great, not just in page views, but in influence. And, you know, so people now are asking, why, why has Matt made this left word tilt? And I would ask him to re-examine their premise. I don't think Matt was ever, he describes himself as libertarian, but his website was never a political appendage to him. It was always a business. And, you know, whether this calculate, he's making a business calculation right now, and whether it pays off is, it's anybody's guess, but I'm confident based on his history and, and the people who know him best, that that's exactly what's happening right now. Speaking of Matt Leshack, he is the author of The Drudge Revolution. Uh, Matt, what, what, was the, what were some of the more interesting things that you found out for this book about, about Matt Drudge? I mean, there's so many, you know, I, so just by way of background, I found out about The Drudge Report early on. I think I was a freshman in college, and it just became a place that I started going to at a very young age. And so it, it, when I think about this, it had a major influence on my thinking, not just because of the you know because of the headlines and the the story that was told just by the selection, the editorial selection of what to post and how to describe what's posted, but also it was a gateway to so much else in conservative. I found Breitbart, I found Town Hall, I found all these different sites early on. You know, I already knew about National Review, right? But there were all these other things that I found out about really because of the the Drudge Report. Um, you mentioned influence before. Give us some sense of of how this guy, I mean, the Drudge Report was profoundly influential on my thinking about certainly conservative media and politics in this country. Can you just put into context for us either stories you've heard from people about that or just a way for us to think about how this website that really does look like it's from 1995 and is a very straightforward concept was really pushing the national conversation a lot of the time? You're 100% right. And one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was I believe in this generation, there's no individual who's had more of an impact on the way we consume information than, than Matt Drudge. And the story of his background has never been told. I mean, Matt rose up came from, a, a, as I mentioned, a highly dysfunctional family. I mean, I went through tons of court papers that outlined just a really sad uprising. Um, and nobody gave this guy anything. And he would rise up and essentially usurp and flip on its head the established media of the day. And we're all sort of, all these websites that you're mentioning, all these conservative websites, we're all sort of living in that shadow right now. And there's all this talk about, um, you know, media and, and the interest in and kind of how it got here. Well, I would contend it really began with Matt Drudge. Um, as far as some of the more interesting that I, I, I found his young, his, his narrative as a child, his love of dance music, just sort of this picture that emerged of a very colorful character as a, as a teenager. But I was also able to get Joseph Curl, who never spoke on the record about Matt before, and as Matt Drudge's only full-time employee he ever had. He was able to outline to me the entire philosophy of the drug and the nuts and bolts on exactly how it worked. And one of the things that Matt told him was, we don't ride the wave at the Drudge Report. We create the wave. So what we're going to do is we're going to find that story that matters to the people. We're posting it. Rush Limbaugh is going to talk about it in his A-Block segment. 
And then at the White House, yeah, they're going to be the, they're going to be asking about it at the press briefing. That's going to spawn 400 more stories, but we're off of it and we're on to the next thing. And that's how they operated. That's how Matt operated. And I think his um his impact, as you described it, you like you're you're you you've created this large conservative platform, and like many other people, it largely began with you clicking on Matt Drudge. Yeah, I, I've got to tell you the 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 three. It's kind of uh, I've never even really I've never said this before on the show. I mean, I'd say the three um, most influential conservatives on my thinking in terms of people who are in the media: Rush Limbaugh, um, Ann Coulter, and Matt Drudge. Yeah, and you remember? Uh, I think you're a little younger than me. At least you look at um, the days. It's like three now. Well, and Mr. Reshack, how old are you? Let's just get it out there. Yeah, I'm 48. 48? Yeah, you're 40. Man, I don't want to hear it. Yeah, I'm, I'm 38. I'm 38. I'm a little behind you, but go ahead. You were saying. Um, you know, well, so, okay, you still kind of remember then the networks when media was just a small handful of people, ABC, NBC, CBS, a few editors really decided what the news narrative was. And, you know, People had stories about JFK, people had stories about Reagan, and they never made press because the gatekeepers of the news decided. Well, Matt Drudge came along, and when he said that Newsweek was going to spike, when Lucy Ann Goldberg called him, it was this perfect marriage kind of technology and this individual. And from that point forward, I would say nothing's been the same anymore. The gatekeepers are on, it's off to races. And yeah, it, you can trade that moment. Matt Drudge clicked on enter. It's you know, it's it's fascinating. We 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 wish we had a, a we're we're losing some of you on the connection here. But look, the book sounds fascinating. I, I'm I was uh, excited to talk to you about this because I think that Drudge is one of the, the most influential and least understood people in media, and and that's certainly something you deal with in the book, guys. Matt Leshack, uh, the Drudge Revolution is his book. It's on Amazon now. Mac, great work, man. Let us know how the book goes. Come back and talk to us. Hey, thanks, Buck. I appreciate it. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right. Going to get into our uh, closing up shop here before we send you off to enjoy what will hopefully be a lovely, restful, relaxing weekend. But before we do that, got to make sure we hear from you. 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825, producer Mark's favorite extra homework assignment, going through all your voicemails. We have some good ones from what I understand this week. We got a lot of them uh, that we're calling in all week. We appreciate that. We we try to get at least a, a bunch of them on the air on Fridays. Um, producer Mark, can you please start the noise? Hey, Buck, this is Pat from Lancaster, PA. I just want to say keep up the fight, man. We're all defined by what we fight for in life, for what we fight. And I appreciate a lot of things you're fighting for, and it really makes a difference. And so I just want to ask you to keep fighting for whatever's good that you can figure out because it really helps, man. It really helps. Stand up for it and encourage us to do the same thing. Hey, Mark, I appreciate your candor and your personality. Hey, you guys take care. Bye-bye. Well, Pat and PA, we love the message, man. Thank you, and trust me, we will keep the fight going. Uh, we we have a lot of tenacity here in the Freedom Hut, and it, it means a lot that this show is uh, a, a source of, of strength for those of you in your own ways who've got to fight 
for what you believe is true and right all across the country. So please, by all means, man, continue to listen and spread the word, pass the buck. And I, I promise you this, we're not, we will not, with our shields or on it, my man, with our shields or on it. Um, that's, that's, what I, that's what I got. So let's go to next one, please. Buck, this is Kevin from Virginia Beach. My question is this. Um, my concern is the Democrats will obviously cheat in the election. They'll cheat any way they can. But my concern is them cheating in like seven or eight swing states in all the big cities where they control the voting booths and they control the process. What have we done, if anything, to make sure that they're not going to swing those states just by virtue of running up the vote totals in those big cities controlled by, by you know, corrupt liberals? Uh, what's your, do you have any uh, insight on that? Do you have any, any, uh, uh, any, any good feeling going into the election? Well, very good question. What are we doing to secure secure the elections against fraud and tampering and and also just incompetence and I, i've got i always will tell you the truth and as part of that i'll tell you now not enough we're not doing enough that that i think is very clear remember they claim the last election was stolen or fraudulent democrats did based on facebook ads bought by some nameless faceless russians that were just supporting a lot of the usual stuff, you know, pro-Trump stuff, anti-Hillary stuff online. That alone, they felt, was, was grounds to question the outcome of the election. So we also have to remember that they will never accept that if their side wins, no matter how much fraud there is, they'll say it was legitimate. And if our side wins, no matter how squeaky clean the election was, they'll tell us all it was fake, Trump cheated. They don't care. They're going to say it no matter what. Uh, but in, in terms of the, the steps, the, the big fight right now is over mail-in voting. If Democrats get mail-in voting, they're very confident that they'll be able to win. So that tells you something. Why, why is that? Hmm. It's not because all of a sudden a lot of people are going to be like, yeah, I'm a Democrat. I didn't know that. All right. Producer Mark, next up. Hey, Buck and producer Mark. This is Mark from South Carolina. And I am wondering why we aren't hearing more about the possible vice president for Joe Biden. I don't think we're hearing enough about that. And that seems to be one of the biggest things that will be going on this year. What are your thoughts? Who are we going to hear from? What are the facts? And what do we need to be prepared for? Shields high. Shields high, Mark, in South Carolina. Thanks so much for calling in. And producer Mark does believe you have a fantastic name. Right, Mark? Best name there is. There we go. I, uh, I, I think that the vice president is supposed to be named by Biden next week. So we shall see. I believe it will be. I believe it will be Kamala Harris. I think they're going to make her VP. I just think that's what the establishment's going to want. That's what they're going to demand. We'll see, Mark. Thanks so much, buddy, for your support. We appreciate it. All right. One more, Mark. Hit it. Hey, Mark. Uh, this is Bill in Brooklyn. I was born in Coney Island. I live in Sheepshead Bay. And I keep, I love the show, but I cannot let Buck continue to put Brooklyn down. If you want to refer to Brooklyn, the liberal Brooklyn, call them Park Slope, but don't say Brooklyn. You're giving me a bad name. Giving Brooklyn a bad name. Shame on you. 
<laughs> Look, Bill Fairpoint, my grandparents are from Brooklyn. I got family in Brooklyn right now. I mean, Brooklyn's a beautiful place. It's just politically, liberal Brooklyn is the worst. It's like the most left-wing, insane place in the whole country, maybe only after, uh, after San Francisco and, and D.C. Uh, but, Bill, appreciate you listening, buddy. And I, I'll, I'll clean it up a little bit. We're talking about lib Brooklyn when I, have, when I give Brooklyn a rough time. Um, and with that, we got to go to our traditional roll call. Coming up. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show ain't over yet, folks. Keeping it real. It's time for Roll Call. All right, roll call. Thank you so much. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Team Buck and iHeartMedia.com. Also, BuckSexton.com. Check it out. Scope it out throughout the day. Got a great story up there on my point that I've been making at the top of the show about whether the rules apply to everybody. We know they don't, but it's worth reading about why. And uh, before we get to that, Producer Mark, any fun weekend plans? Well, hockey's back this weekend, Buck. The one weekend I want to be locked in my apartment. Oh, I didn't realize hockey was coming back. I thought yeah. it was a winter thing. Well, I mean, it is, but they're playing both sites in Canada, so the NHL's doing a bubble just like the NBA, but they have the Eastern Conference in Toronto, the Western Conference in Edmonton, and obviously they have some good refrigeration up there for the rinks. So what is this, when they say in a bubble, what, what are they actually doing? Does that mean everyone has to live on premise and yeah. play? so everyone is in one or two hotels, so like in Orlando, everyone's in the Disney Resorts. Uh, for the NBA in Edmonton and Toronto, everyone's in, I think, one or two hotels each, and they have to live in the hotel. They're not allowed to leave the hotel. They have everything they could possibly need. Like, they have restaurants. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're trying to make it as normal living as possible um, for all the teams, and then you're only allowed to go to the rink, pretty much. Hmm. Yeah. And it's working a lot better than baseball. Is it? They're having no, the NBA had zero positive tests. NHL has not reported any. MLB, a whole team is shut down for a week. They had, the Miami Marlins had 17 players positive. Were they, uh, were the Marlins also, was that also a bubble or no bubble? No, there's no bubble in Major League Baseball. They ah, refused, that's, so that's why. Okay. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. All right. I, I, was, I was unaware of that. Isn't football supposed to start relatively soon, too? Uh, training camps are starting to begin, but there's a lot of controversy there because everyone's seeing how MLB's going, and the NFL has a similar plan where they're going to travel and all that. And it's a lot, I mean, it's going to be a lot harder for the NFL to do a bubble because there's 53 guys on a roster. Um, but still, uh, NFL is definitely in peril. Huh. Okay. All right. Well, I might play some FIFA soccer this weekend on PS4, so I got that going for me. I don't think Snow nice. Princess is going to like that very much. No, I'm going to have to sneak that in when she's you know, doing, doing yoga or something fun like that. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, there'll be the Buck playing the video games. All right. Uh, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. That's how you write in. Or Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. Or Buck Sexton on Instagram. There we go. Ryan kicking it off here. Remember how back in 2016... All the libs said President Trump wasn't fit to have the nuclear codes and couldn't be trusted with our national security. 
I wonder what those same libs excuses will be when questioned about whether Joe Biden should have those same powers. When you see the level of cognitive decline in Joe Biden, who in their right mind would ever allow him to have the nuclear football? In a recent interview, Joe Biden once again forgot where he was, though he was in Vermont, where he was really in New Hampshire. Trump has proven his leadership ability and not let us into war like the left said he would. Joe, on the other hand, is having trouble getting through a single interview without showing his cognitive impairment. Thanks for being an American patriot and standing up for the truth and logic. Shields high, brother. Ryan, uh, yeah, look, I, I, what you're saying is all true about what seems to be the apparent cognitive decline of Joe Biden. I would I would just tell you, I think you probably already know this without me saying it, but we got to say things out loud sometimes just so we can maintain our sanity. Uh, libs don't care. Libs don't care. It's Biden. Doesn't matter how crazy he is. Doesn't matter what, what he says or... I'm Joe Biden, here I am, corn pop, my leg hair is turning blonde from the sun, and I kind of just yell. And I, and I sort of, what, what, what time of the morning are we, pink elephant, what? You know, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. They're just going to say that he should be president. And remember now, they're going to have, you know, uh, a VP who is somebody that the, the establishment left wants to be president you know wants to be a a in a presidential role and uh that then means uh, you know that they're okay with biden not necessarily being able to uh finish out the job you know that's that's what they think that's what they that's their approach that's what i'm trying to say so you know if if, if he has to take over if there's a sense that he has to take over, then they're they're fine with that. They're absolutely fine with. I'm sorry. If, if the uh, VP has to take over, they have no issue. Uh, so remember that. Uh, Al Buck, tell producer Mark he's starting to tell a joke near the beginning of the show on Fridays. May improve his attitude. Oh, maybe he has to start telling a joke in the beginning of the show on Friday, or maybe twenty burpees during a break. So if Trump suggested delaying the election date, it's a way of locking it in November 3rd. Art of negotiation. Shields high. Um, Al, I'm going to leave it to you to try to get producer Mark to do 20 burpees during the show. I'm just going to tell you, I hope you have a large checkbook. Yeah, if I'm paid to do it, I'd I'd be happy to. Yeah, right. I don't think I don't think that a an email saying producer Mark do 20 burpees is going to cut it, though. I'll happily uh, tell jokes. Yeah. Maybe a thousand dollars a burpee might get you close, but uh, short of that, I tell you, it's not not going to work. Um, and as for locking in the, uh, as for locking in the November third date, interesting theory. I'll give you that interesting theory. Um, sage, one of my favorite spices. Aloha from the Freedom Hut, Maui, Buck and producer Mark. Oh, producer Mark. What about Hawaii, man? What about Hawaii? It'd I mean, be so nice. it's far from friends and family. It's super far from everybody. So nice. I, I hear it, it can be a little isolating after a while, but it's like the most beautiful place on earth. Think of all the macadamia nuts we could eat, dude. I'm not a big uh, fan of nuts. But it start to look like a macadamia nut after a while if you eat enough of them. But they're you have like four of those things, and you might as well have had a had a you know three cheese pizza or something. It's, they're those macadamia nuts pack a punch, but. Just saying. 
It sounds like the trajectory of Waikiki follows that of New York City. It had slowly through the mid-1900s become a cesspool of drugs, prostitution, and crime. Luckily, we had our first Republican mayor, Frank Fazi, who completely cleaned it up and drove out the drug dealers, prostitutes, and thieves. We've had a one-party Democrat government ever since, and Waikiki is now a dump again with one, if not the worst, one of, if not the worst homeless problems in the country. I don't see that changing anytime soon, but luckily, I married a Maui girl and escaped to another island, Shields High. Well, Sage, I'm glad you're enjoying that, that island life. Aloha. Sounds like fun. Man, why would be good? I know, I know. So Florida was nice, too. Florida's nice, too. But Hawaii would be... Have you ever been to Hawaii, Producer Mark? I haven't. We wanted to go for our honeymoon, but it's so expensive. Very expensive, and it's 10 hours. Yeah. So the problem with going to Hawaii when you're, when you're coming from New York is three hours in when you're... Like, for me, three, any, any flight up to three hours, I can handle pretty easily. After three hours, I'm like, okay, I want this to stop. Remember that, you know, when you're on the flight to Hawaii and you're three hours in, you're like, well, I could be in Jamaica or the Dominican Republic right now. Yep. But instead, I wanted to add seven more hours to my flight. Exactly. I don't even like flying to California. California is a long, you know, I flew to California and back for work once in one day in coach. It was torture. You fly middle seat. It was a last minute thing. Middle seat both ways in coach. One day. That sounds brutal. Brutal. I was like curl up in a ball, crying myself to sleep on my giant pillar. All right. Ursula. Hey, Buck. I'm a fan of your show since I uh, moved to the USA from Poland in June of 2018. Well, very cool. Thank you, Ursula. My husband introduced me to the podcast when I wanted to better understand U.S. politics. Yes, he passed the buck. Ursula, tell him high five and we love him. It's interesting to compare polarized political scene here to the Polish scene with a government of the right wing and left wing economics. Also, tell producer Mark that a hot dog is a sandwich as much as espresso is a coffee. Shields high. Mark, is Ursula agreeing with you? I don't know. Isn't espresso coffee? (laughs) I'm sitting here. I'm like, I'll leave this one to Mark. I'm sort of. I'm not a coffee drinker, so I don't know. Producer Nick, I feel like, you know, because of his background, you know, he could be drinking one of those super tiny coffees with a fedora and, like, the scarf around the shoulders while he's wearing, like, a, uh, a cream-colored suit. Talking about the old country, you know what I mean? So he might know something about espresso. Producer Nick's going to weigh in, and he say he always weighs in by text. So yeah. that's the thing. We don't, we, don't, we don't hear him, but he's like, hey, hey. Sorry, the, the Snow Princess also comes from the old country like Producer Nick. I mean, not from, but her family comes from. So that's why that when we have these debates about whether you call it marinara sauce or gravy, you know, you call it gravy if you're Tony. Producer Nick says espresso is fantastic. I agree. As long as you don't call it espresso. Like, barbar- like a barbarian. Espresso or espresso? Espresso. Espresso? Espresso. Hey, producer Mark, is espresso. Uh. I don't drink this stuff. You never drink it? No, I don't drink that. If you just want a a quick injection of caffeine into your veins, an espresso is uh, molto bene. I'd probably be more likely to do that because it's like taking a shot of alcohol from me because I don't like the taste. Really? Kind of fire it down. Are you secretly a White Claw guy? You can tell us. We won't judge you. Well, uh, does anyone do a shot smoothly? You're telling me you take a shot of tequila and you just... 
I doubt it. you're evading the question. Are you a White Claw guy? I do like White Claws, yeah. <laughs> and I'm not afraid of that. <laughs> uh, we're so going to judge you now. Look at this. Have you ever had a Sneak high attack. noon? I hate to give free pub, but have you ever had a high noon? No, what's that? They're like, it's basically a vodka soda in a can. Mm. It's delicious. And they have them in different flavors. There's a, at, at my supermarket, they actually sell some kind of, it's not a White Claw, it's some kind of a spritzer. And I can't remember what it's called. And they actually have a a uh, a couple of versions of it, and I'm not remembering what it's called right now. But it's very, it's very. Look, it's very refreshing. It's very refreshing. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Patrick, next up in roll call. My wife brought home another fresh bed uh, br- bed. Bread from the bakery. It smelled so good. I ate one piece, then another in your honor says, you can't eat it. You're welcome. Patrick, well, what's with the gluten shaming, man? You got a gluten shame me like this? <sighs> you know, it's true, actually, Mark. Snow Princess tells me that when she's, when, I'm, when she's not around me, she eats Neapolitan pizza and goes for all the most glutinous stuff, you know? I mean, I would, too. Yeah, it makes sense. Because I don't even allow, I don't even really have it in my apartment. I, everything in my apartment is gluten free because I can't eat this well, stuff. Well, because so. why would you cross contaminate it for you? Exactly. Yourself? Right. I don't want the bread on my counter and then I cut other bread up there. And then there is really good gluten free bread. Susie's gluten free bread, which you can get in Whole Foods all across the country, is amazing. So. But now, if you're eating out, so you'd get takeout, is she allowed to get something with gluten in it? Uh, oh, yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know if she just, to respect no, you, No, no, no. There's no, like, gluten-free solidarity out at restaurants. It's only in the home. Okay. It's only in the home. So, And if I'm naughty, she threatens to throw a flower bomb at me, you know? Well, I mean, you it's kind of punishing yourself, isn't it, if you eat gluten? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you just yes. know better. Yeah, it's no good. It's like me and spicy food. Um, here we go. Matthew, next up here. Buck, you're a real professional. I'm stunned you absolutely nailed the pronunciation of that Antifa guy's last name. It's super rare to hear people get it right. Thanks for all your great work on the show over the years. I've been listening to you since you subbed for Rush. You truly are his replacement for our generation. Shields high. Matthew, thank you so much. That is very kind of you to say. And I don't even remember that guy's name, but I got it right, so I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, Yeah, there we go. Aaron. Buck. You keep talking about whether a hot dog... No, you guys keep talking about whether... I mentioned this once on the air, and now it's like a week later, and you guys are still giving me guff on this. You keep talking about whether a hot dog's a sandwich, but it's just a Trojan horse for the real question. Is cereal soup? Shields high. Well, Aaron, that's a, that's a thinker right there. Yeah. Producer Mark, I, I defer to you on this one. I can't say that cereal is soup. Just the thought makes cereal seem less appealing. Yeah, imagine if you made it hot. Not that you can have cold soup, but it's most mostly hot. Imagine hot this. cereal. I'm going to give you this, though. Yeah. Cereal is a dessert that we pretend is a breakfast food. Well, it depends on what type of cereal. That's there fair. are healthy cereals. Cinnamon Toast Crunch is dessert. Yeah. Fruit Loops is dessert. Yes. I think if you have, like, oats and nuts and things, then it's breakfast. Yeah. My favorite cereal be- is Life Cereal. That's fairly healthy. For the pure, and remember, I did. I, I I ate gluten for the first thirty years of my life, so I have had everything many many times. What is if you're just going for pure taste, the best cereal? Either cocoa puffs or cookie crisps. I love the chocolate. 
I go cinnamon toast crunch. I think that stuff is like crack. That's up there too. I'm a big fan. I, I, I like. I like. I also used to like uh, Lucky Charms. I used to like when the the different colored charms would sort of melt into the milk a little bit. I mean, it's just you're just drinking, you know, colored sugar, but it's good. You, know, you can get the marshmallows now, right? Yeah. All right. Next up here, uh, Stephen. Hey, Buck. A lot of frustration in Wisconsin today. Our governor has def- decided, in his infinite wisdom. That masks are no longer voluntary in our state until September 28th or whatever he decides to extend it to. Uh, as as per, uh, per typical, it was another last minute switch that has my church and our school staff and our uh, scrambling to catch up. Shields High from Wisconsin. Yeah, Stephen, a lot of this stuff is arbitrary, and that's part of what makes me so mad. Producer Nick throws in the mix that oatmeal is a hot cereal. That is true. But is it That is soup? accurate. That is accurate. That is a, that is a, that is a true statement. Tony. Um, here we go. Wait, oh, we got we got a lot. We're not going to get to them all today, guys. We're going to have to hold some of these for Monday, but we will get to them. Tony Buck as always you do a fabulous job. Thank you. Ideas for the merch for the idiot Democrats liberals in your life. A blue mama cap for make America miserable again. Perfect for that beta male in your life, and as a reminder of who he whines to, who is jealous of Republicans and their MAGA caps, and blue t-shirts with either Democrats make America miserable again or Biden make America miserable again. I think sales would be great. Best to you, Snow Princess, Tallulah, and producer Mark. Uh, All right. Well, thank you so much, man. I appreciate it, Tony. That's going to be the show, everybody. Pass the buck to someone this weekend. Get some rest. Back next week. Fighting libs. Shields high.